The Haunted Attraction Association has five new board members, and they're eager to share their knowledge with you. That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring you the news, information, and education you need to prepare for Halloween. We also have a lot going on outside of this podcast, and the best way to make sure you're not missing out is to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the link in our show notes. And a reminder that applications for our Hauntathon, our annual Halloween programming, close on April 28th. Apply at hauntathon.info. All right. The Haunted Attraction Association has five new board members, and each has a unique specialty that you can learn from to make sure this season will be your best yet. So today, we'll hear takeaways from each new board member. We'll start with Tyler and the customer experience, followed by hiring, temporary installations, safety, and leadership development. We'll finish with advice for younger haunters looking to turn pro. Ready? Here's Tyler. My name is Tyler Kozar. I am the COO of 100 Acres Manor in Pittsburgh, PA, co-owner of Mortar Manor, which is a year-round attraction in Orlando, Florida, also co-owner of Postmortem Horror Boutique, and the manager for Nethercraft, which is now NCV Creative Vacuum Forum. You definitely sit at the intersection between not just haunted attractions, but vendors, as well as with the Horror Boutique, talking to really more of the mainstream audiences. So you definitely have that viewpoint on the customer experience. And I wanted to ask you about that. Can you tell me what do you think is the biggest misconception that haunters have about the customer experience? So I think customer experience always gets pushed to the wayside. We always build the biggest sets and the coolest things and put them in our haunted house. But we don't think about the customer experience starts when they first see your first ad. So they see your ad on social media or wherever you're advertising. That's when they first get engaged with your brand. So the experience starts at that moment. And you have to carry that experience to the moment they park, to the moment they buy a ticket, to the moment they stand in line, when they walk through, and then when they exit. But when they exit, that customer experience continues. So even when they get home, is it a follow-up email? Or you have to think about it from the very start to the very end. And I think most haunts think about it as, oh, the experience is when they walk through my haunted house and get scared. It's a lot more than just them walking through and getting scared in your haunt. Can you give us some examples of that? If your website isn't simple for somebody to buy a ticket, they might not buy in advance. They might be showing up at your gate. Then when they show up at your gate, if you don't have the internet or card readers to check them out, that all goes part of it. And then imagine showing up at Disney and they're like, oh, you have your tickets? We don't have anywhere for you to park. So why don't you eh, just go down the road a little bit and walk five miles to the gate? You have to think about how they're getting to your place, how they're exiting your place. It's all part of it. And what is something that someone could do to get started on thinking about this? Because it's hard to then break yourself out of that mindset and be like, what if I was someone who had never been here before? Talk to your staff. Talk to your actors. Chances are your actors attended your haunted house before They signed up to be an actor. So ask them about their experience. And then look at your senior management, your senior staff. Everyone comes from a different background. So somebody, for example, the guy who does our parking at 100 Acres, he works for a large venue here in Pittsburgh that the Penguins play at and all that, and he ushers people. So he understands large volumes and moving people in dealing with the general public. So look at your staff as a starting point. The first touch point is the entry-level positions. They're the people that usually receive the first complaints from guests, right? 
That's exactly it. Your parking people are going to hear about how confused people were finding you or how hard it was to buy a ticket. And then your ticket booth people are going to hear about, oh, I couldn't buy my ticket online because of this reason or that reason. So your staff hears everything before it even circles back to you as an owner or manager. It all stems from those people first. You mentioned the marketing as well as a piece of that. And I know that we hear all the time, like, carry your story through your marketing, but I don't think that's not really what you're talking about. Is it more like if people are asking the questions in your Instagram DMs that you're answering them? That's exactly it. Answer the DMs. And then, yeah, you want to carry this continuous story, but also answer some of the questions people have just with a simple pose of, we are open, rain or shine. You can break your story a little bit just to let people know, yes, we are open, rain or shine. Or if something major happens in your community, put out a post updating them about it. Get involved with people outside of just, oh, we're going to scare you and get you out our door. Can you give me maybe one or two examples of something in any of your businesses that you have changed that has really made the customer experience better? We really do care about what our customers have to say. We would stand out in the parking lot as managers and we'll hear people like, I don't know where to go. I, we've learned, oh, we have to put a person here standing. But the biggest thing is that person can't be dressed in all black. They can't just be wearing a branded hoodie. We actually handed them traffic wands and light up vests because 90% of your people at your attraction are wearing black clothing. They're wearing spooky stuff. So we learned, oh, I got on staff and I didn't see anybody to help me find a ticket. Now you can't miss the person standing there with a blinky vest on and a blinky wand directing you where to go. It seems silly. It seems like one of those things that you want the front of your attraction to be all part of the experience. You got to break that a little bit to help people find where they need to go. What is something that you wish you knew when you were first starting in this industry? I wish I knew how complex it was in a way. Vendors do their best to get products out as quickly as possible. But we hit delays, same as the haunts who are building hit delays. People need to be understanding with one another and work together to come up with solutions. And I think that is what I've learned is how complex it is to, because there's very few haunts who are making their own animatronics, making their own everything from start to finish. We all rely on other people to help get products. What do you think is the barrier to that working together? I think it's education. I think asking vendors, are you importing your products from another country? Are you producing your own products? And then understanding what that means. If someone says, oh yeah, I import all of my fabric for my costumes. You as somebody purchasing that, you need to understand that a cargo ship can get lost at sea. Now your stuff's delayed six more weeks. You need to understand how the whole ecosystem works behind, okay, if you produce everything yourself, you might be paying a higher price if everything is made and not imported in. So you need to understand what that means for your business and also what that means for their business too. And that's not saying you shouldn't get things imported. One of our businesses post-mortem, every vendor we buy from, everything we produce, a lot of it is overseas. So you have to understand how that all works together. My name is Shaylee Mudgett, and I am an owner-operator of the Fear PDX in Portland, Oregon, and RCFX, which is formerly known as Rip City FX, a special effects makeup company and set design. You're joining the board directors at the Hunter Traction Association. Not only are you a woman owner, but also you have that background in the vending space, and that's pretty unique. What is the opportunity here that you think to change the culture 
to for women in the industry? Do you, is that something you're thinking about? And what do you think the opportunity is there? That is one of my goals. Yes, absolutely. Because and not necessarily only in this industry, but just astigmatism worldwide is that you don't see a lot of prominent women owned establishments in particularly any industry. And, and not that I've ever really felt it in this industry, but just the stigmatism nationwide is showing women that you can succeed in a male dominated industry. And the haunted attraction industry is a male dominated industry. It is hundred percent. I have never felt disrespected by any male in the industry but it's nice to show females that you can come into a male dominated industry and get respected and see, be seen as an equal. What do you think is the biggest misconception that haunters have when it comes to hiring and payroll and staffing? A lot of misconception is they're going to do one and done hiring. They're going to have tryouts and hire at the beginning of the season. And they're going to have those actors the entire season. And it's going to be great here to tell you, no, it's not. <laughs> it is difficult. You have to hire throughout the whole entire season. And so not getting into that mindset of, oh, it's a one and done. This is breeze. I'm going to audition a hundred people. We're going to keep 70 of them and I'm going to have them all season. No, you're not. By the end of the season, if you do not continually audition and bring new people in, you're probably going to end up with 20 by the end of the season from our perspective as industry insiders or people that are passionate about it from our perspective, right? We love haunted attractions. It's everything that we do. It's our life, but the odds are most of those people do not want to do haunted houses as their career. And so oh, how can we make the jobs more appealing so that we can get in enough people to run our haunts? A lot of this is people in the community that do have those little quirks that are like, I'm not accepted anywhere. I'm going to go do this instead. And the haunted attraction industry embraces those kind of people because they're the ones that produce the best scares. And so making it more of a family environment, but obviously still keeping it professional, but then also supporting your actors, doing team building, doing potluck dinners every Friday or every Saturday, throwing award banquet type things at the end of the season with scare badges and stuff like that, where you get different badges for your actors. And that's what those seasoned actors are going to bring in those that new blood of being like, hey, this is what we do at our attraction. This is how they support me. This is what they do. We have so much fun. And just making it a professional, fun environment to keep those people around. So it sounds like you're saying a lot of things to do to acknowledge the work that they're doing. Their hard doing. work because you are not an attraction without them. You can't run it on your own. You can't be in 50 scare positions at once. You are not going to have an attraction without them. Can you give me an example? Just really acknowledging what they did well. We're just constantly walking the grounds, checking in with people. Hey, what did you like? And so just keeping that information and sharing it with management staff so it can be brought out. And a lot of it is in those first moments before we open during stretching and stuff like that. It's, hey, last week, this group of people said actor X did great. And just really acknowledging them in front of everybody and just bringing it to light in front and just hyping them up basically. We've heard a lot of haunts talk about 
trying to move more into year-round operations. And a big reason for that is because it allows them to keep a year-round cast. Do you think that should be the goal or what is the long-term solution to this? As If your market can support it, absolutely. I think it is a good idea for the simple fact that with us, we do have those off-season events, but it's not enough to carry those employment records into the next season. So it's every season we have to fill out new paperwork, get new I-9s, file new taxes, stuff like that. To where if your market can support it, it would be beneficial to keep a good core on. It's going to be a little bit lighter on them and less upkeep on paperwork and stuff like that. One of the most popular questions that we ask, we hear this a lot, is if a haunt is working, running as a volunteer, how do they transition and should they transition into paying their team? It's really hit or miss on your market. If everybody in your area is volunteer, if you've got a good basis that you constantly have a good turnout on that, great if that works for you. Today's day and age, a lot of people don't want to volunteer for things. They don't want to do something unless they're getting paid. That's hard. And so transitioning into a volunteer to a paid attraction, it's hard. It's difficult. I did a lot of it on my own. A lot of stumbling blocks, a lot of research, making sure you know your laws, what paperwork you have to file, what paperwork you have to keep on hand, for how long you have to keep it on hand. Once one big haunt in your area goes paid, you're eventually going to have to go paid as well because you're not going to have those volunteers. I want to say we were one of the first in our area to go paid. And it forced a lot of other attractions in the area, whether they were big or smaller or whatnot, that they were losing their actors because they were getting paid. And so it changed the tables here for that. But if you don't put in your time, you don't put in your work and you don't put in your research, unless you pay some service to come in and do it all for you, which, I mean, let's be honest, unless you have a huge chunk of change to be doing that, it's not feasible, especially if you are trying to transition from a volunteer to a paid haunt, because you aren't going to have that overhead capital to help with that. So my name is Mike Quill. I run two attractions up here in Massachusetts. One is called Feartown Haunted House, and the other is Factory of Terror. I started Feartown Haunted House in 2013. That is a temporary setup. It's We started super small, but it's grown to be a multi-attraction event now. We have three haunted houses in a midway that's all setup takedown. So we're very uh, familiar with the temporary setup takedown procedure and all that. And then in 2020, we were able to purchase an existing attraction called Factory of Terror in Fall River, Massachusetts. That opened in 1996. So it's been a long-standing attraction in our market. That's an indoor warehouse-style attraction, about 20,000 square feet. So we have both ends of the spectrum between the two of them now. The goal for most people is get a building because then you don't have to tear up and tear down and your costs are amortized over a long time. So tell me a little bit about that and maybe some of the misconceptions people have about that. It's location is everything uh, with haunted houses. We're picking a great location that has parking. It's close off the highway and also we have enough space. It's a great atmosphere. New England in the fall time being outside 
The downside is we have to set it up and take it down every year. On the positive end, that gives us a clean slate to completely redesign from year to year. So that's something we love to do. On the creative end is totally have a blank slate that we can make a completely different experience year to year. And now having a permanent setup with Factory of Terror is something we're learning is there we can build sets that are going to be there for several years. And whereas at Town we know every year we can revamp it, see what works, what doesn't work. So really, the, it comes down to location, and we have a great spot there, and that's something that we try and take advantage of. So do you think it when someone is trying to decide between transitioning to a permanent or keeping it a temporary setup, do you think it's mainly the location? Exactly. And I would say almost every case, it's ideal to have a permanent setup, but a lot of times, can, if you can get a good, a much better location that you have to do te- temporarily you have to jump at that. And that's what we did. And 11 years later, we're still doing it. And we've learned a lot along the way on how to do it, how to not do it. Did you have an aha moment that has really improved your operations or your process or some way that you have made it to be a little bit easier to do? Because it's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> that's the understatement of the of the century. Yeah, it, it sounds stupid, but forklift is in recent years we've started renting one and now we design to make sure things are forkliftable, to make sure that a big facade, we can put up a second story and forklift it. And now we think back being like, how did we do this without with my pickup truck? And we have hundreds and probably thousands of wall panels that we're unloading and uh, eventually reloading. But uh, we used to do that all by hand into a truck and put it out. Now we're a lot work a bit smarter with forkliftable stuff and making that make our lives a lot easier. What do you think is a big misconception that people have about the temporary installations? There's a couple things in that regard where it's a lot easier to get help in terms of staffing for build crew on the front end because there's you have your people and everyone's excited to build and you're building towards something. It's a little more difficult after the season where you peak at the end of the season, everyone's tired from a long season. It's a lot more difficult to have a strong crew because it's just as much work on the back end. The other big thing is that the average customer doesn't know and doesn't care that you're a temporary setup. They're just caring about their experience. So whether I know how much more work it is to set up our attraction than a permanent install that can tweak some scenes and flip the lights on in September, but that doesn't matter. Like, Customers are paying money to come through our show. It, it needs to be as good as, if not better, than any other show. The average customer just doesn't care that that we're temporary. That's a logistic thing for us to figure out. So even though it's way more work and there's a lot more challenges, you got to roll with it and make sure you still put out a great show. It doesn't matter to the average person. I am Brett Molitor from Huntington, Indiana, near Fort Wayne. And I have Hysterium Haunted Asylum and Hysterium Escapes. I used to be an electrician for General Motors and retired a year ago. You were previously on the board. You, of course, were a previous president, and now you're coming back to the board. Where do you see the opportunities for HAA right now? The HAA is getting a lot of a lot of new enthusiasm with the last couple of years with Spencer's 2.0 that his plan that got more involvement from the board members, more involvement from other people on committees getting more publicity out to some of the haunts. In the last couple of years, on the top haunts, we sent out press releases to local media that we solicited from those haunts. 
So not only was there a national campaign that we were paying for, but we did the local media that was highly received. A lot of the haunts saw a lot of a lot more publicity from it. From our perspective, it talks about safety and business, good business and stuff like that in the press releases that go to the local. So a lot of the haunts are getting questions about safety. And it's always on everybody's mind, especially with everything going on. Another aspect that I feel I can help out with and I've got a lot of experience with is the chaos training. And the chaos program is evolving and it's been a slow process, but the certificates now are only valid for three years. And the recertification process is going online this year. We're getting ready to get that active so people can recertify without having to attend the full eight hours in person. Crowd control is a big thing. And child safety, it's constantly evolving. Background checks became a big one this year. There were several haunts around the country that ended up having some bad publicity because they hadn't done background checks. And some of the haunts have been doing it for a long time, and some haven't. Weapons checks, that type of thing. We used to not worry about who was outside the door other than, hey, we got a big crowd. There's a whole bunch of people there. Isn't that exciting? Now we have to worry about if something happens and that crowd starts trying to disperse, what did we do to help set that up so that they can go safely? Do you think that safety is the largest challenge facing haunted attractions this season? The big challenge is, are you up to date? Is your staff up to date? Are you doing drills? Remember when you were a kid, you always did the fire drill and, oh, this is so boring. And we always walk out in a line and stuff. We all know how to do it. And my haunt, we do it every week. We come up with a different time, different. We don't announce it. It just happens. And we've done it 10 minutes before we opened one time. And we always block one of the exits. I have seven exits plus a garage door on my building. So we have lots of exits. We always block one of the exits and they have to use their alternative exit. And, and every once a season, we block every exit and see what happens. And you get new actors every year, so you have to constantly do that. And a couple of years ago, we had a deaf actor and we did a drill and that deaf actor got left behind in the building. But you can learn 911 very easy. It's 911. So that's now become part of our training orientation with all the actors so they all know that if there's staff or customers that are hearing impaired they know how to say 911 and kind of gesture follow me and we're always learning stuff my name is kevin i own a small haunted attraction up in western new york called everhaunt i also have a day job where i oversee a company up near washington dc that's most of my life during the week and then the weekends are the the haunt which is great live in buffalo have a wonderful wife and a beautiful four-year-old daughter and so i'm living a good life right now i know having the perspective of you being in the haunt side but also in the large company side leadership has been a big focus for you why should haunt owners care about leadership (laughs) i i think that leadership is the most important part of any a high-level role of somebody leading a company. If you could create a culture that is about your team and serving them, I'm a firm believer, and it's worked for me my entire life, that everything else falls into place. If you could create an environment where people want to be there, have fun, feel like they matter, 
and they do matter, have ideas, they're engaged, they want to make a difference with you. Everything else, in my opinion, does fall into place. And I've, that's, I learned that before the Han industry, before I ever got into it, it was taking care of your people. I've, servant leadership now is a big thing that's come around over the years, but this is for the last 15, 20 years, that's what I focused on. And what I've noticed is in the Han industry, it's even that much more important to take care of your people and make sure that the, the culture is a strong one that puts them first, not you, not your money, not anything like that. It's about the people. And, and your customers, obviously, and your guests. But anyways, the leadership is so important. From your perspective, what does culture actually mean in a haunt capacity? To, to me, again, it goes back to having a heart. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but if you walk in or go to our orientation of our haunt or walk in the back rooms, there's giant pictures of all of us together. And there's this culture of family. And it means more than any dollar coming through the door. Look, at the end of the day, we know that's important. We have to do that to make sure that we have the place. But at the end of the day, if you could create a family that truly cares about each other, that truly buys into what you're doing and truly feels like they're making a difference or part of something bigger, then then that's a culture that I think people want to be at. If you look at our retention rates from our first year, I, my guess is 85% of those people are still with us. And we very rarely lose people. Just you create that environment where people want to be, are having fun, and you're letting them be themselves. That's truly what, a, in my opinion, what a, a great culture is about. How do you know when you might have room to improve your culture? I think I don't think back to the haunt much in this regard, but I've worked for a company many years ago where you come in and the culture is the team members are wore down, they're beat up, they feel like they're not appreciated and so on and so forth. You can tell pretty quickly just by if the team is happy or not. If they're laughing, if you walk around and they're having a good time and they enjoy being there. We've had to go into some buildings and turn some pretty bad cultures around that that were quite toxic and the managers truly weren't doing it other than for a paycheck. There's an old way of management. It's the old iron fist management. And that might have worked 20, 25 years ago. But the world's changed, people have changed, and you need to change with those times. And if you don't, unfortunately, you know, you're going to lose people, they're going to go fine, they're going to go work somewhere else, they're going to go do something else. So it's always about putting, again, I'll say it again, the firm belief that if you put people first, then everything else falls into place. So if a owner is listening, and they're thinking like, how do I start? Honestly, this is going to sound silly, but... The first step is getting to know everybody on your team inside and out, not just through the interview process. Okay, so I met Jim in the interview process. He told me that he loves haunted houses and he can do this and that. But no, it's what makes that person go? What makes You should be able to look at anybody on your team at any point and know what makes them happiest and what, what, what makes them snap out of a mood or they're in a rough mood or really... I know it's so basic, but it, you get to know every single person inside and out. And that to me is the first step of creating a culture where those people matter first and they are the most important thing. And by the way, there, there, this isn't always rainbows and butterflies. And look, you might have somebody who doesn't work. And I always say that you have to do your best to make that person part of the team. But if it's not going to work, one person could always also sink a ship. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of that as well. You really have to create a, a team where 
everybody is there for each other. And if someone's not, unfortunately, you have to deal with that. But I think haunts, again, it's a different, a little bit of a different challenge because so many of them are seasonal and the staffing is so fast. You're hiring so many seasonal employees. How do you balance these two things? How do you balance trying to learn that about every person, but you're having to hire 500 people that only are going to work with you for two months? So I'm fortunate. I don't have 500 people. <laughs> I don't have 100 people. I'm lucky a little bit there. Some of these big haunts, obviously, you're going to have to get like-minded leaders that are speaking the same language that you speak. But yeah, I think you could do a lot through the interview process, a lot through the orientation and onboarding processes that, that you have. Literally, we set this culture up in our orientation. So this is how we are. This is how it's going to be. This is how our, this is what our building believes in. We set that up from the beginning. Obviously, with, with us, we've been fortunate to have the same many of the same people year after year, which makes it easy. Usually, there's five or ten people that circle in and circle out, but that's about it. But as far as the bigger haunt owners, I would just make sure your executive team is on the same page that has the same vision that you have, and able to you break it down a little bit further. So that way it's not you against 500 people. You mentioned the short time frame of being seasonal employees. I don't think that matters one bit. I just think that team members are people who come to work at Haunts are just like anybody who works a full time. Everyone's working a job and the seasonality of it. Maybe that's even easier to create a culture that is better because maybe they're not expecting that. Finally, I asked each new board member what advice they'd give to a younger haunter trying to make a career in haunted attractions. You have to plan for what's your end goal. For 100 Acres Manor, it started as a 501c3 with Ted and Bill who started it. They thought, oh, we're only going to put through 100 people and donate $100 to charity. To date, it's $2.8 million to Pittsburgh charities donated. It's where do you see your business growing? Where do you see it ending? I think that's all things you have to consider. If you're starting a nonprofit to raise money in your backyard, how much money are you trying to raise? How many people are you trying to put through? And how you're going to achieve that goal. It's hard to say when is a good time to know your end goal, but I think it's something you need to think about from the start of do I want this to always be a nonprofit and grow into a for-profit? Do I always want to be a brick and mortar store or do I want to grow it and have a thought in the back of your head of, okay, if this does take off, what's the next step? What's our next plan? And then if it doesn't work, what are you going to do? Are you, okay, my, my haunt's not growing that much. Am I going to partner with a haunt next to me? And we expand our shows and we join up. If you're experiencing the pain, chances are your person right next to you are too. So is it working together to create a unique experience that people can do both haunts in one night? There are those one-offs that they decide they want to do this and they're successful out of the gate. But that's maybe going to be five out of a hundred people. So knowing that you're going to stumble, you're going to have a hard time and know there's going to be stumbling blocks and don't give up. Where you start doesn't matter. Where you came from doesn't matter. It's your dedication and your drive and your passion about what you want to do and where you want to see yourself and never giving up. That's like the women in the industry. You've got to have that drive. You've got to have that grit. You've got to have that determination. You are going to get knocked down. You are going to get knocked on your butt. It's a matter of getting knocked down nine times and getting up 10. This is my dream as a kid was to run a haunted house, as weird as that is. But how much you can learn from other people 
we're super lucky that this industry with things like the Haunted Attraction Network and information is out there. People are so willing to share things and a lot you can learn just from working in the industry. You're not going to get probably paid a ton, but if you can just get involved in information and every the lessons you'll learn, if this is something you want to continue on doing, you can learn so much and there's nothing like just learning on working in an attraction, seeing how things actually are. And it's very eye-opening. And that was something when I was, I knew I wanted to do this and it was, do I get a real job for a while and try and then get into it? And I was just terrified that I was going to get too comfortable in a, in that life and not go towards my passion. It's not ideal in a lot of ways, but I just went into it kind of head first as much as I could. And um, you know, it's, it's such a great industry to learn from other people that it's great to be able to take advantage of that. Follow your passion. If it's acting, learn the acting. If it's makeup, learn the makeup. And that's going in early, learning with the makeup people, attending the training sessions, going to the different cons and the different shows, doing that type of stuff. And then at some point, if they decide they don't want to become a manager and owner, then get involved that way. Find out the what you need to do. Learn budgets. Learn staff management. Learn customer service. And start slow. I did a corn maze for a few years, and every year we got bigger and better every year. It's very easy on the budget that way. And you, know, you keep reinvesting in the business. If you try to do everything like Disney World all at once, it's pretty tough. It's that your high success, high fail rate. But if you start slow and start small and build from there, and you might only have a show that's a few minutes long and a few dollars, but every year you keep getting bigger and more complicated. And that's the way to grow. Obviously, go out and learn before you do it. Before we opened up, I traveled, this is not an exaggeration, 170,000 miles. I met haunt owners across the country. I got to learn from people like, Bill at Fearfest in Missouri, his haunts was Necropolis. It's great. Matt at Penhurst and Rich at Brighton Asylum and Brent at Planet Doom and so many. I would say network, get to know some haunt owners, get some experience, start to learn that stuff. But also, more importantly, take your time because there's a lot of unexpected things that come up. You think you're going to make money in three years, it's going to be five years. Or make sure that you're able to do that. If you budget X amount of dollars, Whatever that is, budget another 50% more because the things that come up that we didn't know were going to come up. And the haunt owners prepared us. They said, oh, expect the unexpected because it's going to happen. And I said, oh, no, I got this. I've run businesses for a long time. I'm going to be fine. I got this all on paper. I have my 10000 my 5000 plan. And sure enough, they were 100% right. And we ended up having to, in some ways, take from X to pay X because we weren't expecting that. So you're not going to be able to, in the haunt industry, go from A to Z, A, B, C, D, E. You're going to go all over the place. You know what I mean? My advice is take your time, expect the unexpected, and make sure you get out and learn from some people that have done it before. Today's episode was edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope and original music composed by Chris Thomas. Support for today's episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. From Dark Hour to Netherworld, Super Mario Land to Hagrid's Bike, Gantam goes where other fixtures can't. 
See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantum.com slash demo. That's gantum.com slash demo. The HAN team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Until next time, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.